Hey everyone, I'm Megan, the Family Finance Mom, and welcome to Finance Explained. This week, I've got three major financial headlines for you. First up, the stock market finished mostly flat last week, with March ending the month up, but down for the first quarter, the first down quarter in two years. Next, the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, the PCE price index, showed inflation is still rising. What's rising most? Finally, the March employment situation revealed a return to historically low levels of unemployment. What other indicators does it reveal about the tightening labor market? After that, this week I'm taking a deep dive with the CEO of Mainvest, Nick Matthews, to talk to you about how he leveraged regulatory changes and who could make private investments to democratize investing, giving local businesses more access to capital and local community members the ability to invest in them. Welcome to Finance Explained, where you'll get the top financial headlines of the week, along with an explanation of what it all means and why it matters to you. This week's episode is brought to you by Mainvest. Mainvest brings together vetted small businesses with local community investors, allowing you the opportunity to back the businesses you know and frequent. Discover passive income investments in small businesses across America. Join a community of investors accessing 10 to 25% target returns with as little as $100. Learn more about investing in small businesses through Mainvest at the link in today's show notes. Now for the three headlines of the week. Last week, the market performance was mixed, ending the week essentially flat, up just 0.1%, while finishing March up 3.6% on Thursday, and now down just 4.6% year-to-date. The more volatile, tech-heavy NASDAQ is down further, down 8.8% for the year, but did make bigger gains last week, up 0.7%. Day-to-day market movements in the market continue to be more pronounced, an indication of the more volatile and uncertain economic and geopolitical environment. Last week saw mixed behavior across bond yields. The yield on 10-year Treasury bonds fell as the yield curve inverted, historically a highly accurate predictor of a future recession. The yield on 10-year Treasury bonds just surpassed 2% earlier in March, raising rapidly until last week it slowed down and dropped to end the week at 2.39%. With the rise in interest rates, there has been more focus and discussion on the yield curve. The yield curve is simply a plot of the current market interest rates, or yields, on the bonds of a single issuer, most often the U.S. government. The current yield curve for U.S. Treasuries has jumped significantly in recent weeks, especially for midterm interest rates or those on bonds ranging in maturity from two to 10 years. All rates for two years and beyond are now significantly above pre-pandemic levels. But as I mentioned last week, I'm closely watching the spread or difference in rates between varying maturities. Typically, in normal economic environments, the yield curve slopes up and to the right with longer dated maturities like 10 and 30-year treasuries having higher yields than shorter-term ones. And last week, at least part of the yield curve inverted, with 10-year rates dropping below two-year ones. 
Historically, an inverted yield curve, when short-term rates are higher than long-term rates, has been an almost perfect predictor of a coming economic slowdown. It is not, however, an immediate indicator. Historically, on average, the inversion occurs 12 to 18 months before a recession begins. The yield curve inverts because investors are predicting an economic slowdown, which typically results in the Fed dropping interest rates. So they are essentially pricing in that expectation of a future drop in interest rates. The rise in interest rates that we've seen since the start of this year and the Fed's end of buying mortgage-backed securities has already had a major impact in the rates that you and I pay for credit, especially in the mortgage market. While mortgage rates are still low by historical standards, they have increased significantly since the start of 2022 and rose again last week. From ending 2021 in the low threes to last week, a national average of 4.67%. This is the highest mortgage rates have been since December of 2018. Next up, the PCE price index. There are two major monthly inflation indicators, the CPI, the consumer price index, and the PCE price index, or personal consumption expenditure price index, the latter of which is the Fed's preferred measure. It's because it is based on what we as consumers are actually spending money on, as opposed to the CPI's fixed basket of goods and services. It takes into account substitutions that consumers make as prices rise, which inherently almost always makes its increases lower than the CPI index. For February, the PCE price index increased by 6.4% over the last year, with prices on goods up 9.6%, services up 4.6%, food up 8%, and energy up 25.7%. The core PCE price index, excluding the impact of more volatile food and energy prices, was up 5.4%. The biggest standout in February's data was the large one-month increase in food prices, up 1.4% in just one month, the largest monthly increase for food since the early days of the pandemic lockdowns, and likely an indicator of what is to come this year, given the significant rise in grain prices already. The PCE price index data is released as part of a larger monthly data set that also includes consumer spending and disposable income as well. Recall that we are a very consumer-dependent economy and consumer spending accounts for two-thirds of GDP. As government stimulus from the pandemic has come to an end, disposable incomes have returned to the long-term trend line, consistent with pre-pandemic growth rates. Consumer spending, however, remains elevated. It is this relationship that has economists and investors wary of what is to come, because it is not sustainable. As savings are depleted, consumers will not be able to keep pace with their current levels of expenditures, and if consumer spending slows, so goes the economy. Finally, the March employment situation. The first Friday of every month, the Bureau of Labor Statistics releases the Employment Situation Report, outlining changes in the unemployment rate, additions to payrolls, and the overall estimation of the labor force. 
as of March, we have almost fully recovered from the jobs lost at the height of the pandemic. Of the 22 million jobs lost in the first three months of 2020, we have recovered 20.4 million jobs, leaving us just 1.6 million short of pre-pandemic payroll levels. The unemployment rate is now just 3.6%, only 0.1% higher than pre-pandemic rates, and in historical context, extremely low and considered economically as beyond full employment. Full employment is typically considered to be around 4 to 4.5%. This allows for job switchers and new entrants to settle into the market. Rates below that, as we see today, are often indicative of an extremely tight labor market. Why is the labor market so tight? Because while employees have rehired many workers, many workers also opted out of the labor force entirely. The civilian labor force is still down 0.2 million workers versus pre-pandemic levels, with nearly 1 million fewer women over the age of 20 in the labor force today than pre-2020. The tight labor market is leading to rising wages. If you look at the civilian labor force as the supply of labor and compare it to the demand for labor, measured as a combination of current payrolls plus job openings, the labor market has never been tighter than in the last three months. Demand also doesn't fully capture that anecdotally, employers are saying many workers want to work fewer hours, which means you need more employees to fill the same demand. That is driving the acceleration in wages. Hourly wages for non-supervisory employees are up 6.7% over the last year, while hours are down 0.9%, resulting in a 5.8% increase in wages overall. Employers pass on these cost increases to consumers as price increases, with rising wages being yet another source of inflationary pressure. This week's podcast deep dive features Nick Matthews, the founder and CEO of Mainvest. An expert in marketing and operational strategy, Nick led the team that launched Uber in Boston back in 2013. While launching Uber in new markets, both suburban and urban, he experienced firsthand local challenges around economic development. He founded Mainvest in 2018 with the goal of empowering communities to determine their own economic development, utilizing new regulations, which opened up private investment to more individuals and novel investment vehicles facilitated by Mainvest platform to align incentives between local community members and small businesses. Mainvest essentially allows you to invest in local small businesses while local small businesses get access to the capital that they need to grow. Welcome, Nick Matthews. Well, Nick, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. So before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of Mainvest, I'd love to kind of start by giving us a little bit about your background and how that led you to creating Mainvest. For sure. Um, my background, you know, I was, uh, grew up in Massachusetts, uh, went to school, state school in Western Mass, uh, and pretty much out of college, uh, joined Uber uh, as one of the first 50 employees to launch Boston, uh, which was one of our uh, first markets back when we were a simple country black car service. 
um, and spent the next six and a half years uh, growing, growing Uber and growing with Uber. Um, and you know, it was an amazing, amazing ride and amazing journey yeah. um, through the good and the bad. Uh, but I think you know a lot of it does tie together. You know, firmly around like you know what Mainbus is is like this investment marketplace really focused around access to capital for small businesses and giving communities the option to share in that success um, and you know diversify their portfolios. Uh, but it's some of the similarities is we're working with a bunch of real people, you know, on the ground. Uh, these, you know, we don't call them assets, we call them people, but these on, like, on the ground um, brick and mortar businesses and these amazing entrepreneurs. Um, and there are a lot of similarities when we were, you know, talking to like livery drivers and small business owners, black car drivers, and, and everyone has a story and it's, um, there's an amazing amount of personality to it. Um, and also a lot of challenges that come with that scaling of you know, these hyper local markets. Um, you know, where it also ties in, I think the initial kind of ideation from Mainvest came um, in 2000, around 2012, actually, when um, exploring like can Uber work outside of major metropolitan areas and looking at like, does it work in smaller population towns, supply and demand liquidity, um, how all that works. And I couldn't do that efficiently. Um, and eventually it became inefficient without going down a lot of economic development rabbit holes. Uh, which is really where I first got edified around, you know, the role small businesses play in like localized economic development, but even more so just the massive gaps in capital access for small businesses and the extension of that to like women and minority owned businesses, like in the institutional prejudice. And, you know, you snapshot in 2012, you looked at, it's coming out of the uh, financial crisis, institutional lending into small businesses dropped pretty much overnight, 69%, uh, like a crazy, crazy amount. You look at the like the graph and I was just like, whoa. Uh, and and it, that, that probably happened again at the outset of the pandemic too, if I had to, if I had to guess. <laughs> that was actually interesting. It was the two best years of institutional lending because of PPP, right? So right. when the government, um, you know, when you have non-recourse debt at such a high volume to be facilitated, it was crucial and important. Obviously it could have been executed, I think a lot better, uh, a lot more meritocratically, but um, was, you know, a kind of a unique outlier in terms right. of that capital needed to allow for, um, you know, businesses to weather the storm and sustain. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, in looking at kind of the, kind of the breaking of that institutional lending model where it like really moved from, you know, cool, like what's your business plan? Uh, like how do you, how are you going to attract like do you have a profitable business into like a pretty firmly how many beds how many baths how far along are you in your mortgage payment so that like if this we don't really care if the business needs or fails because like we're completely backed up uh, in case it does and and that seemed broken um and like that core aspect of like capital allocation you know from these institutional sources was missing the market underwriting and market validation aspect and it kind of led to this question of like well you know, why can't communities directly invest in the businesses they want in those communities? And why can't businesses, you know, have like streamlined ways to take capital from the people that matter most, turning communities into customers and customers mm -hmm. into evangelists? Seemed like a great idea at the time until I got further edified <laughs> in um, <laughs> securities laws, <laughs> the Securities Act of 1934. So this is a long story. No, no, I think, I think it's super interesting. <laughs> the Securities Act of 1934, um, which 
you know, for one, had regulations around like raising capital and doing private placements, inherently private. I um, mean, you weren't able to publicly solicit for investment, so you, you know, couldn't market um, for, for people to invest. It's really hard to have a marketplace without marketing. Unless uh, you can qualify the investor, because right. only if you have a million dollars are you qualified. Exactly. And that was like the other side of it, like the limitations where like it was like only these people are, are fit to take these risks and invest because they have a million dollars, excluding their primary residence. Which seemed ridiculous. It was around five, six percent of the population at the time. But those regulatory blockers kind of answered that question for why something like that didn't exist. And you fast forward to 2016, I moved down actually to DC, which is where Google's US ops headquarters is. And it was right around the time that the Jobs Act and regulation crowdfunding was on the floor of the House and the Senate. And you know, it was exciting. You know, like all the bylines were like equity crowdfunding. The entire impetus for it was looking at this massive amount of wealth generation coming out of Silicon Valley, limited to only accredited investors and even more so like the venture firms that had access to the deal flow, um, combined with this flourishing private capital market where companies like Uber and Airbnb, it's big examples, were continuing to just go back to these private markets for like D, C, F, and G rounds continuing to raise that private valuation so that by the time they went public, um, the majority of like that potential upside for retail investors was already- like, Was gone. <laughs> and like that seemed like super cool, like allowing people to invest in early stage startups if you can build a good regulatory and investor protection framework around it, but doesn't necessarily solve the same like, level of problem because there is a flourishing private capital system, venture capital, private equity for early stage tech companies there isn't for small businesses. And it kind of to the, like these regs are designed for that, but can we retrofit these regs to create the gun lock in like kind of back end to enable small businesses in this like kind of community capital, community underwritten capital model um, to scale it out. And over the next few years, then did a lot of pressure checking, finally figured out the answer was yes. Um, so that's, that's kind of how Mainvest came into existence. That's really cool. So it sounds like, you know, this is an idea you've had for over a decade at this point but you are kind of ahead of your time in terms of like regulation as well as probably I think maybe even public readiness. Um, but I think there's kind of an ongoing trend and theme and many people that I've had on the podcast lately about democratization of finance. So, right. and in your case, it's not only on, you know, the individual side of things like the individual investor, the personal finance side of things. It's also on, the corporate finance side of things, but at a much smaller scale. Um, so hopefully at some point we have, we get back to mom and pop storefronts instead of corporate chain franchises everywhere is I hope where you're headed with this. Where, where I kind of, I would say like the last thing we want is to be forced to eat at Olive Garden five nights a week. Um, <laughs> and so we're the preventer of that. And no offense to anyone that likes Olive Garden. No, no, but, but like, you know, I think we all. It's not like a failing on business. It's like Darden Holding Company and, you know, right. through many iterations. I think the buy one, get one, like family meal <laughs> was one of the craziest things I've ever seen. And I was like, who, who, who wants that? That's not, that's a lot of breadsticks. Uh, so, but, you know, oh, go ahead. I got how you go. No, so, I mean, my next question was going to be why choose small businesses as main best focus, but I think you kind of already addressed that. So maybe let's go into exactly kind of how main best works. So what is a typical investment on main best platform look like? And maybe kind of what that life cycle looks like from how you get a business on and then how it becomes available for people to invest in. 
For sure. So, you know, we work with businesses, like a lot of them are coming to us from other businesses that have been successful on the platform. That's our kind of primary um, like acquisition is that word of mouth and, you know, seeing validated businesses, finding success leads more businesses to think, oh, can this work for me? Um, and, you know, really on the front end, the business can fully self-serve, go through the platform and build out their, their investment opportunity and their offering. And it almost functions as like a reg tech platform in that sense where what we're doing behind the scenes is we're taking all that information and auto-generating a 28-page Form C offering memorandum that we file on their behalf with the SEC to enable them to use the regulatory exemption. And that's a lot of mouthful words for small businesses, but really like they, the way they understand is it just, it's a clear vehicle for them to be able to go out, engage their community, and you know, start raising the capital that they need to either start up a new business or expand and grow their existing business. And maybe just for, for people who may not be familiar with corporate finance, like this was kind of my first job working in investment banking, but you're doing normally you're doing this for companies that are, you know, multi-hundred million dollar companies, and there's a tremendous number of bankers and lawyers and all of these people involved in order to get all the documentation in place and then go out and market to institutional investors to raise hundreds of millions of capital. You found a way to kind of do this at scale at a much smaller level for local businesses, essentially. Right. And like sometimes we make a joke that we're like an ops company masquerading as a technology company. Um, but like, you know, it's not like there's like a proprietary, like we, we use like algorithm modeling and stuff, but there's not like a proprietary algorithm that's like the core of our product. You know, it's really like allowing technology to eat all of those complex challenges and bring them in to streamline it to enable small businesses to be able to access something like that. Yeah. When we say like, you know, we're not a reg CF company, we're retrofitting these complex regulations to work and empower small businesses. Um, to have a best-in-class way to raise capital and, and grow. That's that's awesome. So once a business is on your platform, then how does it work from an investor an investor's perspective? Like, do you have to qualify investors? Is there any kind of minimum investment or anybody who signs up to the platform can invest in any business? So any anyone with a US bank account can invest in, in any business. Our minimum is $100. So designed to be very low and allow for like diversification to multiple offerings. Um, the way we work is when you see offerings served on the platform, those are businesses that have already gone out to their community and gotten some of that early market validation um, that kind of like really fuels a large portion of the underwriting model and what's led to this amazing performance of this asset class that we can get into um, with obviously the asterisks of past performance is not <laughs> yeah but all, all those past, good investment caveats <laughs> this past performance being with a predominantly uh, food and bev and hospitality brick and mortar uh, portfolio through a pandemic has been incredibly compelling for us and, and incredibly compelling for investors and that's where we see you know when an investor comes back to the platform to make their second investment, the, the trajectory curve up uh, is just, is exponential uh, because of, you know, the quality of businesses that, that are, are coming on the platform, the performance of the past ones, and um, our ability to really just continue to streamline and engage and provide value on both sides of the marketplace. So I don't know if you have these handy, but like, do you kind of have, so if a minimum investment by an investor is $100, what is sort of the average investment? Do you have kind of like return targets or statistics? Yeah. So the majority of businesses are pricing their uh, securities in like the 10 to 25% annualized return range. Um, and the way the, the investment structured, you know, 
like one of the things is like equity doesn't make sense for a lot of small businesses. The way what we've built out is a purpose built security specifically for this type of capital that's called a revenue sharing note. And so the way your investment is realized is as, a, as the business generates revenue, you get a percentage of that revenue paid back to you quarterly up until a total amount of principal plus like targeted return above that is hit. That's cool. Uh, sponge. So, you know, in thinking about it in terms of diversification, like right, diversification play, like it's unlocking um, access to like a previously opaque asset class of these like revenue backed securities into cash flow generating small businesses. And the value to the businesses with the new is that like as they accelerate their revenues, the faster they um, accelerate, the faster they grow, you know, though there's still a total amount that you get paid back that gets cut off, the faster that they accelerate their returns. Um, the higher the IRR for the investor is and the happier the business is because they're growing. Yeah. Um, and to like bring that on to the community level, when you have, you know, 50 to a hundred people in a community investing in a business that they want there, you know, our core thesis then they support it. at market validation on the front end, like is a strong indicator that that's going to be a higher performing business. And that, that has been proven out like through the as class, but yes, then on the back end, you have this aligned interest of the community and the businesses where you talk about turning you know, communities into customers, but also customers into advocates, uh, really acting as you know, supporters of that business, but also as like marketing and engagement for that business as well, which is something that, you know, I think previously it's hard, you, know, you have like customer loyalty programs, but those are really one-off the, the X, like the exponential aspect of people really like having pride in their community and their businesses, uh, just drives this like closed loop capital engine that it can accelerate yeah. as economic development. So just to kind of put this in more tangible terms, <laughs> no, 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 no. Just for people listening, like this is literally like your best friend is deciding to open a new kind of gastro pub down the street. And this is a platform that allows them to register their business and then make it accessible to friends, family, neighbors, um, you know, other people in the community to contribute and invest in opening that business. And then as investors, you will get paid out as that business succeeds is right. essentially kind of what we're talking about. <laughs> so um, how would you, you know, for just to kind of, for some of my followers who may be kind of new to the investing world, how would you think about the risk profile of a main best investment versus say investing in the stock market? So, I mean, look, you talk about the stock market right now, or, uh, you know, all on a long-term perspective, long-term perspective, <laughs> long perspective um, you know, all investments are risky. And when we look at kind of the pricing of the securities, it's meant to align with kind of that risk profile. So uh, when you are kind of looking at, you know, different investments on the platform, like we would never suggest, you know, diversifying 100% of your investment strategy into this. Um, we think it, like it's, it really starts as like an alternative investment option for retail investors. Uh, the way to kind of comment in terms of like price profile and returns is it's, it's almost like similar to like real estate investing because it, it's a passive income investment mm -hmm. that builds and generates over time. Um, and as that liquidity comes back, that can be reinvested. Um, at this point, like, you know, something that's really important to know is like these, these investments are inherently like illiquid in the sense that like, you can't you, trade them, you can't trade them. There is the ability to trade them. Like there's not like a regulatory blocker to that. And it's something that we're really excited as like we look to the future to have that secondary market, to be able to provide like long-term investor liquidity and, and enable that um, down the line. But 
you know, a lot of that comes with, like, we want to be able to hit a certain uh, scale on our supply side of assets to be able to prop that up. And currently, are you guys limited to certain community, like you're talking about different communities, or do you have businesses on your platform kind of all over the country? We have businesses, and this was kind of like a byproduct of the pandemic, uh, where, you know, everything went digital, yeah. uh, including us. And, you know, at that point, I think when we went in, we had uh, launched offerings in two states. Um, over the last two years, we launched offerings in, I believe, 42 out of the 50 states. Wow. So, um, yeah, it, like, it could be accessed by businesses anywhere. Um, we definitely have seen, um, like more liquidity in certain markets as they develop because you do have this kind of natural flywheel of like as businesses launch other businesses see that value like investors see it and then like as you have investors that are primarily investing based on location more opportunities provided in those locations increase like their um, reinvestment rate so how do you guys vet the small businesses that try to access the platform? Like, can anybody just sign up or do you guys do some due diligence on we your end? Right now we accept uh, less than 5% of businesses that apply, but I think there's like strong asterisks there where um, a lot of that is based on like stage of, you know, business, like pre-business model is not like a time to, to be raising. Right. And it's also a category where, like a bunch of technology companies come to us and want to utilize the platform. Really, that's not what we do. Like go, go to someone else, go, Go to venture capital. Right. <laughs> Guys, come on. Like, we're trying to support small businesses here. Um, and the, our vetting process is like, we, it's not an underwriting process because we ourselves are obviously not the lender, right? We were the marketplace facilitator. Um, but we do vet based on historical financials for existing businesses, pro forma financials for new businesses. And you know, we actually have some amazing like automation there and um, algorithmic comping where we're able to take, you know, from just an increasing amount of data. Um, all of these category-based uh, norms for, you know, for example, like if a natural grocery store comes to the platform and is projecting a profit margin of 45%, that's around uh, 10 times the average natural grocery store profit margin, like that would be a red flag. And, and we that's would cool. That um, but really the kind of magic of, of the quality of the asset class and where we are like constantly fighting the, the stigmas of 90% of restaurants fail in their first year of operations, we're like, well, not ours, um, is the the under the core underwriting is done in kind of two th three phases throughout the race where the business is going out to friends and family in the community getting that localized market validation there i think first friends and family then community and customers is kind of like the second level and then as it like opens on our growing base of reinvestors on the platform once those get served to them then you're having like this like alt investor retail investor third level validation um, that leads to a successfully funded business that's really cool. So what are, I mean, you're obviously an entrepreneur from kind of the outset, like whether it's with Uber or now doing this, is there, are y'all also providing, it sounds like you are also providing some guidance and services to these small businesses. Like I know coming from a private equity background, like that was one of, that's one of the things you bring to bear when you're investing in these businesses is you have experience working across all these companies and you can lend that experience to help these businesses grow too. It is, it's something that I think we didn't anticipate as much going into it, uh, but like it, it is one of the like most rewarding parts of the business for, you know, like we don't really have like a sales team. It, it really is like this consultatory business development team that's working with these businesses to help them kind of work through and think through uh, needs. And I think that 
what's exciting is like as we just continue to you know build across categories and build liquidity you know having talks to hundreds of breweries you know like every single like any member of our team could go out and start a brewery right now right. we found a good brewer like, I'm not saying that, that, that. no but even even just having like the kpis like the key performance indicators across different business platforms you could easily say like hey most people in this business can make this profit per table in a restaurant or can make this profit per square foot in so you give them something to strive for and then you can help them find the areas to improve. And I think that like that's one of the important ways to think about our the platform and what's really exciting about it is like it's not like a set it and forget it where like once this business like oh, cool you got your capital gone like all the like every quarter businesses report their gross revenue we have their their real time financials um, we pro rata distribute those returns to investors through the platform. So like the business, once they join our ecosystem are in it for like a three to six year life cycle of the business. And what really excites us, like the long-term kind of value main best is really tied to the, yeah, the performance of the asset classes and, and as a mess marketplace. And we believe very strongly in that. And so having these relationships, these businesses throughout their life cycle provide those opportunities to provide incremental value, um, you know, also different forms of like monetization, as long as we're providing more value than we're monetizing. Um, but like, you know, when you think about having 400 uh, coffee shops on the platform and being able to have like a collective buying agreement and negotiations with them for different aspects of the supply chain. That's cool too. Yeah. Dissipate. You know, I really think about, you know, the long-term vision, we're not to sound too startup. No. You know, we're building the future state infrastructure for like the domestic economy and small businesses run our domestic economy. They drive the highest employment rates across the country. Um, the, they've had faced immense challenges and the resilience we've seen the increased adoption of technology and the values that, that provide these businesses just continue to improve the quality and their ability to, you know, generate revenue, hire more employees, expand, um, you know, every business starts small. Yeah, no, I think, I think it sounds really cool. The, and I think you offer, it's a huge value add proposition, both on both sides of the equation, both for the small businesses on the platform and for making that investment opportunity available to, retail investors who, you know, before they would never have this kind of opportunity. Um, one of, you mentioned kind of a three to six year time horizon. Is that kind of the typical time horizon that people should expect in a main best investment? So yeah, we usually, businesses are usually setting at around five years, their maturity date. Um, and their project like you can when you're evaluating an opportunity you can look at that percentage of revenue shared and the projections and kind of model out like within the performance of those projections when that would be paid back um, in full uh, but what we have also seen is businesses despite the pandemic outperforming projections and so like that maturity is kind of like the last if the business hasn't repaid in full the remainder of the loan is owed to investors a balloon payment on that maturity date okay. uh, we have had you know, despite only being around for three and a half years, like a little under, I guess three years, um, we've actually had businesses, uh, a few businesses that have fully repaid already um, wow. at the schedule. And, you know, the, the actual price IRR of uh, fully fund businesses because they accelerated their repayments and grew so, so much quicker than I think they had, they had even anticipated um, is in the 30% plus range annualized return, which is not something that like advocate not like what's going to be, you know, the long-term balance yeah. 
class. But you know, we believe that like as these are priced and as like businesses continue to rebuild and grow coming out of the pandemic, you know, we're seeing uh, returns in like the ten to twenty percent kind of IRR range, which is a very compelling um, you know yield alternative for you know, for this kind of passive income investing. You talked a little bit kind of about like where you see things going. What are some kind of, where do you see Mainvest say a year from now? What are some of the features maybe that you guys are working and in investing in right now? One of the features we're really excited about is funds. Um, so right now, like you're like if you go onto the platform, like you're making one-to-one -one investments and evaluating each individual business. But as we've kind of said, we when we look at like how we can gauge the performance like and predict the future performance of these businesses with that social underwriting, um, there is that kind of threshold where like once that box is checked, like there could be a higher level of conviction that that business is, um, you know, going to be providing like a strong liquidity to those investors and bundling those into different funds to allow investors to diversify more streamlined efficiently, still having like the ability to review all the underlying data, of course. Um, but that's something like imagine being able to just invest in the Boston fund or a fund of uh, women black owned businesses or um, a category fund of breweries. There's a lot of really cool things we can do with those mechanisms yeah. them, um, that allow for de-risking on the investor side. So are you thinking like you would pool businesses already on the platform and then, or would you fundraise first and then do you know what I mean? Like with the chicken would, egg question? We would pull businesses on the platform. And so okay. like businesses that hit that, like, then you can invest in that diversified fund. And for the businesses, it would just be, you know, a one-to-one -one investment on their end. Right. Uh, for, for you, it would just allow you to just deploy capital more diversified, more efficiently um, across the platform based on your, your uh, kind of investor profile. And what yeah, that's, that's really cool. Um, so last question for you, given kind of your background as an investor in the current kind of weird world that we live in, if you could invest in anything in the current economic environment, what would it be and why? Oh. Small wow. businesses? <laughs> I mean, I, like, I can't show that. I, I obviously would. I, that's one of the unfortunate parts of being a FINRA regulated entity is like, we personally can't, like, regulatory wise can't invest. no i'm not saying like a specific like it doesn't have to be a stock or it doesn't like what kind of category is most interesting to well, you right now i mean I, I can't say anything but small businesses because it's just we uh, we are so passionate about it we're seeing you know the really the core thesis that we had play out in real time pressure tested by this pandemic and the opportunities around the rebuilding and regrowth of our domestic economy what we're seeing, like what we're seeing right now, last three quarters of new business formations were up nearly 200% off of the 10 year average. Like the spikes, yep. you have like with any kind of recessionary um, period, you know, people get de-risked, they decide they want to do things. Uh, you saw like with Shopify blowing up after the 2008 recession. And the things that these people are doing uh, are very much like looking into like small businesses. And I think the other silver lining of the pandemic is kind of this don't know what you got till it's gone is a, around the importance and crucial role that small businesses play. And it's been very exciting to see that, you know, from a community standpoint, you know, and that's where like, we do kind of trend this line between like, we're an investment platform, but we're very mission driven around economic development, around like supporting communities. And it just feeds back into that, like Olive Garden sentiment around, you know, these small businesses form the cornerstones of our main streets, they form that identity, they're crucial crucial to our local um, economic growth and development and being able to fuel that growth and accelerate that growth 
through a flourishing private capital system, market underwriting, the long-term impact of that is accelerated growth and development without like displacement, without gentrification, allowing communities mm-hmm. themselves to be growing, not having some private equity firm come in, buy out this kind of put a like put the Whole Foods in, then put like a pirate store in extra with the Banana Republic. Like you see that cookie cutter model of development. And that doesn't benefit the that benefits parts of the community, usually the highest wealth parts of the yep. community. But it doesn't build wealth in the community. And so allowing the community to self-build wealth and grow it, the long-term kind of economic cycle of that closed loop capital is is what's most exciting to me. And so yes. And just and just the the kind of equal access that I think your platform provides where, you know, before if you had a good idea, you might only be able to execute that good idea if you come from money or you have some friends who come from money or your family can backstop you. Like this kind of changes that. Right. And it, it enables for business, like if your family can back up you like a hundred dollars, it enables you to do that and then build off of that and go out and, and, and like really engage with the community. Yeah. You know, the value proposition for the businesses isn't just like capital. It's capital that actually works with them and works for them. But it's also like the marketing aspect of being able when you're running this very public raise for a new restaurant, a new business in town, you know, say like one in a hundred people will invest, but a hundred people are now aware that this business is coming to town. And like, there's real value on that end around just like the awareness for these businesses and giving them the tools and tactics to continue to improve and continue to grow. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining today. This is, I think it's super interesting opportunity you know, for people interested in looking at kind of alternative investment ideas, and then also for any of the small businesses that are brick and mortar, right? Not online type businesses, just brick and mortar storefronts at this point, right? Yeah. I mean, like brick and mortar is like a little loose. Um, you know, we have you know, food trucks as an example. We've had some food trucks. But that's a, that's a physical <laughs> plant. Like, yeah. I really think about it as like, it's brick and mortar business to consumer. So, yeah. you know, like yoga studios, great example. Um, we had a, an exotic reptile store, a very successful Mambus raise. There, there's some interesting outliers. We had a funeral home, um, which when you actually think about it is a core- Good and, demographics. Well, it's a core and crucial community business. It was very hard in a very dark light to not make COVID jokes when, when we were talking to that business, but it, and I, I probably regret saying, maybe we'll cut that. But no, it, it was, <laughs> Like when you think about the the community trust and the importance of that is sad and dark as it is, it it, it is a core community. Yeah. And that's the, that's kind of how we think about it. And it, it's a massive, you know, subset of small businesses across food, bed, hospitality, agriculture, um, fishing. Like there there are so many cool aspects for it. And as you kind of build and unite kind of unite the clans of this hyper-fragmented asset class and bring it together, the value that can be unlocked from having it together and being able to have the different aspects of it be connected, serve each other, like farm to table, um, being able to source from like locally grown farms that were also raised on the platform. That, that's those long-term effects. Yeah. And we'll talk about like future state infrastructure. Like we can just build better main streets that the communities are actually building themselves. So where should people go, whether they're investors or like a small business? Do, does everybody go to mainvest.com? Everyone goes to be one-stop shop. Okay. 
www.mainvest.com. Um, and you can, you know, I, hopefully our site is pretty easy and simple to navigate. Um, if you're an investor, you can uh, click on the investment opportunities link and view investments sort by, you know, investments near you, investments by, by category, investments by an entrepreneur profile or return profile. If you're a business, um, I definitely encourage you to take a look uh, at like the section that kind of explains uh, how many of us works, you know, we're ready to work with you. I mean, someone on our team will hop on the phone and see if we can, we can be helpful. That's awesome. Well, thanks Nick so much. I appreciate you taking the time. No problem. Thank you. You can learn more about Mainvest and visit their homepage through the link in today's show notes. Coming up this week, economically, it's mostly quiet, except for the release of the Fed's March meeting minutes on Wednesday which will give us more insights into their discussion and plans for the rest of 2022. For more insights on all we covered today, including charts and graphs of all the data points covered, be sure to check out today's show notes. Have questions about the economy or your personal finances? Submit a question for the Finance Explained podcast. Look for the link in the show notes anytime and I'll address it on one of our weekly episodes. As always, I so appreciate your support. It is your questions, weekly listening, sharing with friends, and especially your honest and thoughtful reviews that help make Finance Explained possible. So that's it for this week's episode of Finance Explained by Family Finance Mom. I hope each week to build and expand your financial literacy, help you understand not only the week's headlines, but how they relate to you, and also you can make better financial decisions for yourself, your family, and your futures.